0: One of the other great challenges of being a chamber music group is that you want to retain an audience base. You want to keep people interested in what you're doing and not forget about you. And you also want to connect with them because they're wonderful people, the people that go to see concerts. They're not just like there to like clap for you, although it's great when they do. They're wonderful people who you can form these lasting relationships with. And it's a real community that we build over time.
1: This is the Institute for Music Leadership. Welcome to another episode of Create, Inspire, Lead. I'm your host, Jeff Dunn. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Liza Malamut and Ben David Aronson. These two Eastman alumni co-founded Incantare, a consort of sackbutts and violins that highlights the musical and cultural connections of underexplored musicians from the Renaissance and early Baroque periods. Incantare was a recipient of a Paul R. Judy Center for Innovation and Research grant from Eastman's Institute for Music Leadership. This grant supported their concert Exile, which explored the influence of Italian, German, and Eastern European music and Jewish culture. Incantare is presenting this program at the Hendricks Chapel at Syracuse University on Saturday, February 19th, 2023, at 4 o'clock p.m. You can find a link on the podcast page of the IMA website. I sat down with Liza and Ben David to talk more about how they formed Incantare, manage the ensemble, and balance the portfolio careers they're both engaged in. I'll turn it over to Ben David and Liza to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Ben David.
2: Thanks for having me and Liza to talk about Incantare today. So I am a lot of things, uh, including a professional trombonist and music educator at every level currently i freelance in the rochester area and the surrounding regions as a traditional modern trombonist and i also freelance primarily with my colleagues in the sackbutt world mainly liza and garrett uh, around the country both as trombonists for hire with organizations that present concerts that are not related to our group, but also as a member of Incantare, which tours the country playing music primarily by quote-unquote new composers from the Renaissance and the, uh, the late Renaissance and the early Baroque. We like to represent composers who are not fully appreciated currently. We hope that they will be more fully appreciated as a result of our bringing their music to life and present them alongside of more familiar composers and try to do so while telling a compelling story about them so that they are not just composers who left music behind, but actual people with real lives and who are living in the real world.
0: I'm Liza Malamut, and um, I am a historical trombonist living in Chicago. I did my undergraduate studies at Eastman um, as a regular trombone major, but um, eventually read the writing on the wall and um, devoted myself to historical trombone. So I uh, got my doctorate uh, in that subject, studied with Greg Ingalls at Boston University, and now I play with Incantare, and um, I'm also the artistic director of the Newberry Consort, which is a historical performance group in Chicago. And then, um, similar to Ben David, I also do a lot of teaching and freelance work. I teach historical trombone at Indiana University, and I also travel playing wherever uh, historical trombone is needed throughout the country. So, Liza,
1: what um, brought you first to Eastman to pursue your undergraduate degree? The
0: simplest answer is that I just really loved trombone. (laughs) And Eastman was uh, a place that I thought that I could pursue that love. I really wanted to study with John Marcellus. And um, I did. And it was a really uh, great experience. I still continue to learn from him. To this day, he's just an amazing pedagogue filled with knowledge. So I think that was probably the overarching reason. When I visited it, it was deadly cold and dreary. And I thought, oh, my gosh, um but then i heard the orchestra play my dad took me for an audition we heard we heard so i think that was god it's been so long now i think that's what the younger orchestra was called but we heard a concert and i was so taken by it that i i just knew this is where i wanted to go
1: yeah and that orchestra is still known as ESO. things certainly has not not changed uh but what uh what started to happen during that time for you that made you interested in early music
0: Um, I think there were a number of things that happened at once. Um, The first thing was that I took uh, that early music history sort of survey course with Dr. Macy, who played the most incredible recordings and was such a riveting teacher. um, And I just got so interested in both the music and the material. And um, kind of along with that, I've always just loved chamber music more than any other kind of music. It's just such a creative and collaborative experience and that's exactly what historical performance is. It's, you know, we do play a lot of, um, orchestra concerts. We play a lot of Mozart requiems and a lot of Beethoven and stuff like that. And it's still great. But, um, the majority of what we do is in smaller groups without a conductor. There's just so much to learn and to discover and to, we, you get to make so many musical decisions and there's so much exploration to be done. So it's just something I really enjoyed. Uh, found the old seventies Finca Sackbutt but, and, uh, decided to try to give it a go, (laughs) and uh, now I guess uh, (laughs) here here I am, here we are.
1: (laughs) The rest is history, as they say. So, so Ben David, uh, how did your uh, career journey evolve to bring you to Eastman? I
2: started out as a undergraduate student on the River Campus, which happened at a time when I was aware of what Eastman was and what happens at Eastman. But I did not actually apply to go to school there. Um, I came from a family that really sort of pushed me towards getting a liberal arts education for my bachelor's, which made sense for me at the time. And I think it was a good thing for me. And I found the environment on the River Campus at the University of Rochester to be a really great environment for me. Uh, I spent a lot of time at Eastman there. I had the pleasure of working with a wonderful DMA student at the time named Sean Scott Reed, who really pushed me. He took me seriously as a musician and as a trombone player and as a person. And he pushed me towards uh, higher and higher standards all the time, including getting me involved with Eastman a little bit, primarily through taking lessons with a professor, Mark Kellogg, whom I love dearly. And also, he helped me to win the concerto competition at the River Campus, which was something that I never really imagined myself doing. So that made me hungry for more. Uh, Mark, in my work with him, encouraged me to get a master's degree at Penn State, which I did and also loved. And then subsequently encouraged me to think about Eastman for a doctoral program. And um, Mark has never steered me wrong. I really appreciated his encouragement. And knowing that I had been a part of Eastman to a certain degree, but wanted to really experience it fully, I felt like that was something that I had to do. And I also am very happy for having done that.
1: So along the way, where were the um, the moments where early music caught your interest through those degree programs and your education?
2: I think it was dormant for a long time since childhood because I had the unusual, I think, uh, upbringing of being in a house with a mom and a dad, especially a dad who was just absolutely in love with the music of J.S. Bach and the surrounding time periods he was the kind of dad who would listen to music with me together. He would take us into the music room where he would turn on his speakers on his fancy sound system that he was so proud of. And he would shut off the lights, not tell me what he was going to play and start blasting the a B minor mass as loud as he could. So that I jumped out of my skin and, uh, as frightening as that was, I also loved it. And I just didn't know, I found a connection to that music by listening to it with him. And I never knew until I was in my undergraduate program that people could play that kind of music, even the music of Bach on my instrument, and they could do it really, really well. And so I began to get interested in early music as through the lens of a trombonist and a A brass player around that time. And it it grew slowly over time and kind of took hold towards the end of my time at Eastman, much later, actually.
1: I enjoy that. And I enjoy trying to be the same kind of dad myself that plays Renaissance polyphony for Rory, and then she goes, more. (laughs) And it's great. So what led you two to connecting and deciding we should form our own ensemble?
0: Well, the really funny thing that we always go back to is that Ben David and I were in Rochester at the same time doing our undergrad in trombone, and we never met um, until many years later through our teacher Greg, who sort of is this like force in the sackbut world. Like he just brings people together and really introduced us all to this music. So, um, In Cantare started uh, with a workshop that. Greg and um, Julie Andrzejewski, who is a wonderful violinist and teacher at Case Western, they got together and they created this workshop for Greg's Sackbut students and the Case Western Early Music Program to do this Gabrielli workshop. So we played like this huge Gabrielli piece for like for 22 people with choirs, sort of spaced all around the room, and um, Our other colleague, uh, Garrett, was there, who we, three of us had actually met at Eastman, believe it or not, but doing a a project only tangentially related. It was a Pretorius project that I conceived for AMS with the Scola Cantorum. Um, I'm starting to get get off topic a little bit. But anyway, um, so when we were at Case Western, we met Alice Kulit Ellison. When I was playing next to her, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, this is like, we just made the most amazing music. We got along really well as friends. So one day, the four of us, Garrett and Ben David and Alice and myself, were just like, hey, we should we should start a group. And the secret, not secret about that is that we actually made this decision at this like very sketchy, but wonderful dive bar in Cleveland. There was like neon fish tanks on the walls and stuff like that. Um, but we were so excited and we played a concert together and it went really well. And then eventually we added our two other core members uh Naomi Gregory who plays organ and Cynthia Keiko Black who plays violin. I think we just keep getting better like it, we we really got lucky. I think um I I've I've been in a number of chamber groups throughout my life and tried to start a number of groups but uh there's a special something here that you know it's it's just always fun to make music and uh very fulfilling in in many different ways.
1: I want to take a step back for a moment cuz you used the word sack, but so for our listeners who are certainly maybe familiar with the word trombone, but not the sackbut. Uh Ben David, could you just describe what, when we use the word sackbut, what are we referring to?
2: We are referring to the historical ancestor of the modern trombone, the sort of instrument that students at Eastman who come to study uh, would look at a, a sackbut, and even non-trombone players would look at a sackbut and say, well, hey, that's that's a trombone. And um, it is, of all the modern instruments that are still played in orchestras, wind ensembles, and other kinds of um, well-known ensembles, it's probably the instrument that has changed the least in the last 500-ish years since it's been around.
1: So is this endeavor to have your own ensemble, especially in this space of early music, was that something that both of you Always knew was something uh, that was a goal, an objective that you wanted to fill pro- professionally? Or did this opportunity just kind of land in your lap and you all said, Yeah, uh, sitting around this sketchy dive bar, this seems like a really good idea?
0: For me, it, it was sort of both. Like, um, I always hoped and dreamed that I would get to play sackbut for a living, which was, it, it really is kind of quite a dream because as you can imagine, it's kind of a niche. <laughs> It's a niche field, only in terms of how many people do it, because it's actually similarly an incredibly broad field. There's such a massive amount of repertoire to play, like half of it hasn't even been discovered yet. It's both small and extremely large. In Cantare, really, I do feel like was kind of serendipitous. Um, That was uh, a corner that I never expected to turn, and really glad that I took the turn.
2: I think that while I have can share a special affinity and love of playing chamber music to what Liza described earlier. Uh, I think I never really imagined that I would have that opportunity to play in a truly dedicated chamber ensemble and and certainly not for playing historical music on historical instruments. Uh, I just consider myself very, very lucky to have been connected to Liza and Garrett and uh, so many other musicians, thanks to the mentorship of lots of people, uh, and particularly in this case, Greg Ingalls, who I think has made it a mission to get more of this music in the world and to make sure that more people hear it and that they hear how wonderful it is so that they want more of it. And so he has sent our generation out into the world to. Spread the good word, so to speak, to show people not just how much we love this music through our playing, but to show other people that it's great music. It's not just, some of it's not just good, it's amazing. And we want people to feel when they listen to us, to feel the way that we do while we're playing it. And there are few joys in the world that can parallel the feeling for me of playing with this group and I think that that comes across more and more and more it's just been a singular joy to experience our point a to point b and which I think we started out pretty good but we're getting better every time we play together uh and just as a musician there's Fewer things that you can uh, enjoy more than playing music that you love with people that you love at uh, the highest level that you possibly can and redefining what that level is at every possible opportunity and never being satisfied, but still enjoying it immensely.
1: So you formed your ensemble it was fortuitous timing perhaps but also some some real great concrete career objectives and Liza you already mentioned that it's maybe despite the 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 repertoire it's it's a niche in the field right um and something certainly I admire about Ninkontare is not only that um you're a successful chamber ensemble, which is challenging enough for any musician, but you're doing it in a niche field. So could you describe some of the challenges that you faced over the last several years as you've formed the ensemble, gotten things off the ground, been through the pandemic, unfortunately? Um, and, you know, how have you persevered through those challenges?
0: I think with, with any group starting up, there's going to be some sort of growing pains where you're kind of figuring out how things are working, you know, what what works best for everyone especially for our group when we have um we don't have everyone in the same city so um we can't rehearse like on a weekly basis whenever we get together we we take as much time as we can pretty much leading up to the gig to like really hone the music and um and also our, ourselves as an ensemble but i would say probably the two biggest challenges and and ben david you might feel differently were definitely the pandemic for one um and also Um, sort of selling ourselves to mainstream chamber music um, presenters, because, you know, as Ben David said, this is, it's really truly good music. It's not just like, you know, it is niche because it's small, but it's not niche because it's weird or, or like, you know, (laughs) only a subset of people could understand it. You know, it's actually incredibly accessible, Um, it's, it's very complex and it is super enjoyable to listen to. So one of our goals as an ensemble is not just to be like, oh, we play early music, but we play chamber music. Um, but it is challenging sometimes to convince, um, series who might, you know, be booking a string quartet, um, or sort of your more traditional, you know, quote unquote, mainstream classical music programming. Um, that they should book us because we are we are going to present material that is just as high quality as those more traditional means of performance. So I would say that as far as how we dealt with that, we're, we're still dealing with it. This is kind of an ongoing challenge. But the longer that we are around, we're starting to, I think we're starting to convince people. Um, we played on a couple of exciting series last year and this year. Um, we have some potential things lined up for next year, which are really exciting as well. And just getting people to hear it and under, and understand that aspect of it. And, and one way we also do that is that Ben David does a lot of our audio and video producing. And um, he really knows how to capture our sound exactly as, as we hear it. So we've been putting a lot of those videos out into the world. And I think that's also been really helpful. And we don't just kind of share it to like, you know, early music enthusiasts. We say to trombone players, hey, look, here's a piece. You might not have heard of this, but this was written... For you, it's extremely virtuosic. And, you know, here's the music, you can even play it if you want to. Um, You can play it on a modern trombone, even if you want to. I'm talking a lot, but I can address the pandemic briefly, um, which is that uh, obviously nobody was performing. One of the other great challenges of being a chamber music group is that you want to retain an audience base. You want to keep people interested in what you're doing and not forget about you. And you also want to connect with them because, they're wonderful people. the people that go to see concerts are they're they're not just like there to like clap for you, although it's great when they do but they're they're wonderful people who you can form these lasting relationships with, and it's a real community that we build over time so during the pandemic, we kept that going by doing a sort of s- virtual series that we called Incantari talks where we would play videos that we had done in the past and we would also talk about various aspects of what we do. And sometimes it was, you know, academic, you know, we talk about like instruments, uh, continual practice and stuff like that. But then sometimes we would be like, oh, here's some fun gig stories, like learn about what we do on the road. Here's some funny things that happened. We actually, I I feel that that really actually, I sort of hate the phrase silver lining. It's been used so often now, but we really were able to build those relationships even stronger than they were. So in a way, it was a really nice thing to be able to do that.
1: Was that series monetized, or was that something that you just made accessible to all of your um, you know, existing relationships?
2: It was not. It was always free, but we always made a point. Garrett was sort of our point man, because he's really good at asking people uh, to make donations in an inviting and non-confrontational way. Letting people know, hey, this stuff takes time. It's work. Um, We're trying to give this as a gift, but uh, it's really helpful for us to have support from our audience and from people who feel like what we're doing is valuable. And so while I wouldn't say that we turned it into a very strong sort of a business model necessarily, but we really received tremendous uh, and very gratifying support from people who would attend following every single one of those programs. And it really helped to keep us going.
1: That segues well into uh, talking about the business structure, about how the four of you as, you know, the original perhaps founders, and you you operate the, the ensemble as a whole now. You mentioned Garrett being, uh, you know, very skilled in the donor base area, right? So how do you divide up the work? How do you approach making sure that uh, everything for the ensemble gets done that needs to?
0: Well, I think um, everybody tends to have their strengths. Um, and in some ways, we've kind of unintentionally fallen into a, a sort of, you know, Ben David does our audio visual stuff. I do a lot of like our grant writing. Um, Alice also does a lot of that, too. Garrett does our finances. Cynthia is like super creative. So she does a lot of things with like our campaigns where she'll like make these beautiful sort of. Handwritten thank you notes for people. Um, You know Naomi is incredible at working with singers, so she she's really helpful. Like we work with singers quite a lot, she's very helpful um, in that regard. Um, She's probably out of all of us has the most expertise there. Although those aren't really hard and fast rules, we all kind of help out when we can with everything. Like Ben David just did a a proposal and. We also have other lives too, so it requires very careful balance. So um, we've learned over the years, sometimes the hard way, that sometimes one of us may have to step back for a while, and then another person will jump in and take over. And it, there's kind of an ebb and flow that I think we're, you know, after being around, gosh, close to five years now, we're sp- starting to find that rhythm for us. Like I imagine for all groups, it did take some time, um, and that's something that that we had to talk about. Couldn't you can't just like you know, expect that things are going to just kind of fall into place immediately. It, re- it really does take work. It, you know, it's like a relationship. You have to figure out what people want to do, what they don't want to do, what they have the capacity to do, you know, their bandwidth, all of that stuff is really, really important.
2: We're very sensitive to one another uh, as we're all friends. And I think that we're constantly staying in touch with one another and monitoring for what people have the capacity for because ultimately our lives are largely unpredictable not completely but i think urgency kind of rules the day a lot of times certainly does for me and we all jump in and help out as we're able to and we trust that everybody else also has our back. We also share resources online a lot. Google Drive has been a tremendous resource for us to exchange information and work together on projects, even though we're all remote. It's sort of uh, amazing to imagine how this work would get done without a resource like that. I'm sure we're not the first people to have an ensemble like this that's separated Uh, by such a great distance but for us that works really
1: well well and you're certainly not the first ensemble where everyone has to balance other parts of their lives on an individual level how do you find that balance
0: oh still working on it (laughs) we all have like we're all musicians so we have like four jobs and I think and some of us like you have a kid right so it's like there's all of these like interlocking overlapping things. And, and I think sometimes, you know, like Ben David said, sometimes things are more urgent than others at any given time. So I know at least for me personally, I, I try to make space (laughs) each day to not only get the work that needs to be done, done, but also to try not to, um, only do work. <laughs> I think uh, a little bit of decompressing can actually help a lot to be able to prioritize the things that need to be prioritized. Just to have a clear enough head to say, okay, this is today, this is the week, this is the month. What are the priorities? What are what are things that can come second? And and sometimes you know it's not going to be the same thing every time.
2: I'm still working on it too. If I figure it out, I'll let you know. I'm I'm trying to find a balance again, just like Liza, every day that allows me to do the things that I love and still love them. Because sometimes when you're running around doing all these things and things are too urgent for too long, it can be a little bit exhausting. And so I think that Liza's point about taking time to rest and rejuvenate resonates with me deeply. I'm constantly trying to do that and do things not just for income, but also out of curiosity and love. My life's quest, one of them, is to have the simplest, most uncomplicated relationship with music as I possibly can, which, as a professional, that's uh, something that needs to be practiced and learned, I think, for most people, unless you are really, truly blessed in these sorts of abilities, I continue to try to get there every day and find ways of reminding myself why I'm doing this, because I love it. And again, being around people who I really care about and who care about music in a way that resonates with me, um, motivates me, it gives me more reasons, it reminds me, and helps to motivate
1: me to find better ways all the time of making that balance work. So what kind of advice would you give to uh, younger musicians? Maybe they're in school, maybe they're freshly out of school that are interested in creating their own ensemble to pursue, be it in the early music scene or outside of it.
0: I think what Ben David just said is really important. I think the music needs to come first. I think sometimes it's really tempting to dive immediately into the ambition part of starting an ensemble. And ambition is not bad. Ambition is actually very good when harnessed for good. But for me, when I've been feeling the most successful and happy in an ensemble is when even though you do have to do all this stuff, you you do have to learn the business side of things. You have to know how to book gigs. You have to know how to work together through hard times and easy times. And you have to know how to do all these things. But creating good music, quality music, polished music that you're always striving to get better and better at and make it more beautiful and discover more new things and keep enjoying it. I think that just has to be the number one goal of any ensemble. And the rest, yeah, you have to work at it, but the rest still needs to follow.
2: I agree completely, I I don't have much to add to that except for the fact that it reminds me of something that I live with that was given to me by another beloved mentor, uh, my professor from Penn State, Mark Lusk, who would tell me and everybody who walked through his door all the time that if you put music first, if you put the music first, good things will happen. And I put my faith in that, I trust it. And so far, it has proven to be the truth.
1: You mentioned fundraising in a a couple moments today. Um, Could you just share briefly a short um, sentence on some of your approach to fundraising and how that works?
0: Yeah, we are a fiscally sponsored ensemble as of now, um, which means that we are not independently a 501c3, a nonprofit. We are in an umbrella organization, which... Gives us nonprofit status, which means that we can apply for certain grants, not all grants, um, we can apply for national grants, and we can also accept donations and the donors will receive uh, tax deduction from from that so it basically gives us the freedom to operate as a nonprofit but. Without like the complete benefits, we don't have a board. We we don't have access to certain lines of funding. Um, so that's our current situation. We hold a yearly holiday fundraising campaign, um, which is super great. We do have some plans in the works that we are. I think the goal for us is eventually to become a full five hundred one c three. But there are other ways to go as well. So that's something that we're still talking about.
1: And do you find that comes from a standpoint of the fulfillment, right? I mean, obviously we all as musicians have the needs of, we need to feel musically fulfilled, but then at the end of the day, we also need to pay the rent and, you know, be financially uh, fulfilled. So if we put the music first um, and really prioritize that, do you find that it just gives you enough musical fulfillment that the rest kind of falls into place? Or would you also say that by doing that and having just a seller product, the ensemble just winds up being successful as well?
0: I think both of those things are true um, because if you're always striving to enjoy yourself by making the highest quality and best and most beautiful sound you can make, like even if you're playing a trombone alone, right, like you're always striving to make the very best sound you can, that's going to make you feel better, right, like just emotionally. But it's also going to make you sound good. And if you sound good, you're going to get hired and people are going to want to hear you. So I think... You know, it's really kind of field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. And and of course, you know, we we also know the reality, right? It's very easy for me to sit here and be like, oh, you just like play really well and like the jobs will come because we all know that like so much goes into this, right? And there's so many highs and lows and there's a lot of struggle like this. Being a professional musician is, is um, it's not for the faint of heart, but I still nevertheless agree that if you play it, you know, there's, there's more, there's a higher likelihood that they will come.
2: (laughs) Yes. Knowing and always remembering and reminding yourself why you're doing what you're doing makes everything that you have to do to get there worth it. I think that making sure that your reasons for making music are clear and Improving your relationship with those reasons, like well, I knew that I loved music. here's a million reasons why here's a million kinds of music that i that I love to listen to and that I love to play, and the more reasons you have, the more worthwhile everything that you do to make it possible to keep doing that becomes, and that is a lifelong process that needs to kind of be the beginning and the end of what you do as a musician. A musician is not just something that you do, it's something that you are. So what does the
1: future look like for Incantare then?
0: That's such a good question. I think, you know, we've, we've always, we always kind of bat around, like, what do we want this group to look like <laughs> five years, 10 years down the line? And I think, you know, we do have such complex lives. I don't think any of us are intending for this to become like a full-time gig. Although sometimes I dream of that <laughs> what, what that would be like. Um, but I think we just have so many different things that are important to us that I'll just only speak for myself, but I, I do think that this is a sentiment that we share, which is that we want to continue to perform as an ensemble regularly and and keep performing more and keep making better and better music. Um, it seems like a really simple goal. And and in some ways, it's kind of a vague goal, like just keep performing and playing good music and and doing it more and more. But that's really kind of all that I can think of to say, because to me, that's kind of what we're about is just getting to make good music and playing it for as many people as possible.
2: I think we yes, we want to do it more. You know, I think that we want to uh, find more opportunities more easily. I think that ultimately we want to be able to come up with a basis for fundraising or financing concerts that is a lot more predictable, a lot more sustainable. I think that we want to gain access to the largest possible audience in this country, in other countries. I think that we have a lot to offer, particularly because of the nature of the work that we're doing, that we are not just an ensemble playing unusual music on unusual instruments, but that we're really trying to carry the work forward of bringing new music into the world, however you want to think about what new music is. And I think that we all look forward to a time when we can, perhaps, we would be able to afford to have somebody other than us Be doing some of those things. As a matter of fact, that was one thing that we specifically fundraised for this year. And it's really, it's really worthwhile. I think that we want to, again, we love doing the work because the music matters to us a lot. And making that music together matters to us a lot. But in the end, we want to play the music and we want the road from the beginning of. An opportunity to concert day to be as effortless as possible so that the main thing that we're doing and that we're thinking about
1: is the music. Since you're both Eastman alums, would you mind just sharing a favorite memory of your time at Eastman?
0: What just came to mind was uh, Frederick Fennell came and did his final concert with the Eastman Wind Ensemble when I was in it. And it was really amazing. I think. Out of all of the times that I played a concert as an undergraduate, um, and there are quite a few good concerts, like even as I'm saying this, I'm like, but what about that concert? What about that thing? And what about that other thing? But um, experiencing that sort of uh, history <laughs> right in front of me, um, seeing this person who is so connected to this place and connecting through music, experiencing sort of the festivity of it all. Also, it was just really, really fun to play Susan Marshes with Frederick Nell. And then uh, we couldn't have known at that time that he would pass away very shortly after, which makes the memory for me really, really poignant.
2: This might be somewhat generic, but I can't really think of any one particular moment uh, right now. That stands out to me so much as just my general impression that it was really a precious opportunity to spend time being surrounded by so many people who love music and in so many different ways. I thought that everything that I received from all of my teachers at Eastman was extraordinarily valuable. I really loved being around other trombone players who took the the craft of playing an instrument really seriously. And I love being exposed to different ways of thinking. I loved being surrounded by PhD students who were studying to be musicologists or music theorists. I honestly have to say, and maybe you can relate to me on this, maybe one thing that kind of brings this all together is I kind of really worked working at the library because I had a chance to be surrounded by more of these people than I think I might have uh, with any other student job, for example. You'd work at the circulation desk, in my case, and every imaginable professor would walk through the door, all the students would walk through the door, the library staff, uh, and you really got a pretty wonderful sense of what the world of Eastman was really like. And I... Just loved being able to experience that in a temple of knowledge, really, a place that is dedicated to honoring people's love of music in print, like in a permanent way. So I loved my time at Eastman. I thought I got a tremendous amount out of it. I continue to get a lot out of it as I try to process it seven years almost after graduating. And I wouldn't trade that for anything.
1: Today's episode was produced by Kelly Jetson. The music was written and produced by Stephen Bigner, Alexis Silverman, and myself. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us via our website at iml.esm.rochester.edu. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues and leave us a review on your preferred streaming platform. This podcast is a production of the Institute for Music Leadership at the Eastman School of Music. The views expressed in the podcast are the interviewees and do not represent the Eastman School of Music or the Institute for Music Leadership. From the IML, I'm Jeff Dunn. See you next time.